Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's 40 years this month since the first official U.S. reporting of HIV-AIDS, and we hear again an interview with Dr. Anthony Fauci on his recollections of the disease. And we hear other voices and memories of HIV-AIDS at 40. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Forty years ago, on June 5, 1981, was the date of the first official reporting by the CDC of what was later to become known as the AIDS epidemic. And one man was to become the expert face and voice of HIV-AIDS in the US in the form of Dr. Anthony Fauci. All these years later, and Dr. Fauci is still one of the most recognised experts in the HIV-AIDS field. So here again, my interview with Dr. Fauci from December 2020, and I began by asking him if it felt like 40 years since the beginning of the epidemic. You know, in some respects, it seems like forever ago, but in some respects, for those of us who have been involved, as I have been, from literally the very first week when the reports came out from the MMWR, it seems very much like yesterday, uh, because I still have flashes in my mind of those early years, which I'll never get out of my consciousness of the extraordinary suffering and pain with a new disease that we didn't even have a name for it. And we certainly didn't have a cause for it, but we were just there trying to put band-aids on hemorrhages during that time. And then a lot of things have happened in 40 years, many of them really, really good uh, in the sense of therapies and prevention. So yes, it, it seems like forever and it seems like yesterday. We're going to touch upon a little bit more of that as we go through the conversation. You've always been, it seems, at the centre of people's attention, certainly with the current pandemic. But of course, we you know, often forget that HIV AIDS is a pandemic in itself. And, and I want to take you back to your meeting with Peter Staley, who was uh, or who is an activist for, for ACT UP. And you met him in the, the late 1980s, I believe. What were your impressions of, of Peter? Because you're still very much, I believe, in touch with him? Well, more than in touch with him, he's one of my closest friends right now. So uh, yes, uh, I talk to Peter a few times a week at a minimum. So, um, you know, the one thing that I, I got back then for Peter, but also for several of the other activists, were highly committed, uh, very intelligent, passionate people um, who had a cause that history has shown was an extraordinarily productive cause. But at the time, they were doing uncharted waters. You know, they were poking at and challenging the well-established scientific and regulatory enterprise that had never been done before. So uh, I think when you describe them, uh, Peter included, and particularly because I know him well, but others, you know, Mark Harrington and Greg Gonzalez and David Barr and Jim Igo and on and on, and on, I could spend the entire time naming them. There were so many important people. It was courage. I mean, they were very courageous. They were bucking against something 
that had never before been challenged. So in that respect, even back then, as they were challenging me, clearly more than, I mean, they were challenging me. Larry Kramer was trashing me <laughs> in his own inimitable way. But even then, you had to have respect for them because you knew what they were doing is that they were really on the right side of history right from the beginning. You yourself were trying to change things as well because you were trying to invite, obviously, these groups of people, um, you know, onto clinical trials and things. So you yourself were um, sort of like bucking a trend, I suppose, in a way as well, weren't you? Oh, yes, I was. And it was at no small cost because there were certain members of the scientific and regulatory community who were very upset at me. They thought I was, quote, the word they use office was selling out to the activists, compromising the scientific process, compromising the regulatory process, just to essentially cater to these rabble rousers as they were felt to be. And I think that as time went on, those people who were criticizing me finally realized that they were not rabble risers, they were people trying to gain the attention of authorities who inappropriately were not paying as much attention to them. But I, I definitely had my bumps uh, and bruises from that too, because my own people, many of them in my own organization, were very concerned and upset at what I was doing. We, of course, sadly lost Larry Kramer uh, recently. As you said earlier in this interview, you had a very good relationship with him over 30 years of a friendship. How did that affect you? Well, it was a, it was a big loss. I mean, Larry was, you know, an iconic figure who I had a very, as he described it in his own words, quote, a complicated relationship. And it was complicated because it started off in a very confrontative way, him confronting me, not my confronting him, you know, and some of the things that he did to gain the attention of me, which he certainly did gain my attention, as well as for the scientific community. Larry was a very passionate person, uh, very committed. He, he was an important part of the activist movement because he did not pay much attention to the fine-tuned details of the scientific process. He just was a, uh, you know, an iconoclast in the, in the best sense of the word. He would challenge everyone and everything. Um, he felt the entire gay community was, were his children, as it were, his people, his tribe. And he would do anything uh, to protect the safety and the health of those people. And sometimes to the extent that they rebelled against him. You remember when he wrote the book Faggots, there was a big pushback on the part of the gay community against him. But then he became the leader and the hero of the activist movement. And our relationship was, was very complicated. It started off very confrontative. And then as we got to know each other, we realized, both of us, that we wanted the same end game. We wanted to end this. We wanted to get treatments. We wanted to get prevention. And that's when we became closer and closer. But to his unusual, unique character, even as we became very close and were really, really good friends towards the end after 10, 15, 20 years, is that he would not hesitate for a moment to just blast me on something that he felt was not being handled correctly. But he wouldn't take it in the sense of doing anything wrong to me. I mean, we've had situations where we would be on television in a panel and he would be blasting the hell out of me, you know, calling me all kinds of names on public TV so that, you know, 10 million people were hearing it. 
And then I remember one or two or three or more instances when I would get home, walk in the door and the phone would ring. It would be Larry. He said, wow, wasn't that a great interview? How'd you like it? He said, Larry, you just trashed me in front of 10 million viewers. What do you mean? How did I like it? But that was Larry. You had to accept him. You went on to become his doctor uh, later yeah. on in life. And also he underwent uh, an organ transplant as well, which uh, you uh, were very much sort of part of. It sort of really set the scene and changed things a little bit for people who were living with HIV AIDS because he was quite a lot older to receive an organ transplant, wasn't he? Oh, yes. I mean, we, we pushed and found someone for him who would be able to do it. It was quite successful. As you know, when Larry passed, he passed in his 80s. I mean, that is really something for someone who had been not only living with HIV, but who had uh, a liver transplant and was on suppressive therapy for his liver transplant. That's most extraordinary. I think it speaks to the tough, toughness and resiliency uh, of, of Larry. Uh, but yes, I, I was very much involved in his care and in getting him set up for the liver transplant, but it was the beginning of a very important change in attitude of getting transplants for people who were living with HIV as opposed to just giving up on them and saying, well, they have HIV, therefore, why should we waste a liver transplant on them? Right now, not only transplants from uninfected people to them, but, but transplants between HIV-infected individuals or persons with HIV. The other thing I wanted to put to you as well is how do you deal with all of the attention that comes in your direction? Because, you know, we've just spoken about Larry and about Peter and they are both friends. But as you've just said, they also challenged you. You're also challenged on a daily basis, um, you know, by other people who don't know you but make assumptions. How, how do you deal with all of that, Dr. Fauci? Well, if the challenge is valid, um, you figure out how to address it. Um, and if it can be addressed, you address it as properly as you possibly can. If it's just people attacking or, you know, making uh, comments that aren't helpful or productive, um, then you just ignore it. And I've learned over the years how to compartmentalize and ignore things. I mean, you have to be careful that you do not get distracted from what your main goal is. Right now with COVID-19, my main goal is to develop therapeutics and vaccines to end the outbreak and to serve as a public health official articulating to the general public what they need to do to protect themselves from infection. That's what my entire life is right now. That's all I do. When people do things either in a flattering way or in a threatening way, which I get threatened often, I just consider that as peripheral noise and I can't get distracted by it. I just have to focus like a laser on what it is that I should be doing. As we said at the top of this podcast, Dr. Fauci, next year is 40 years of the first diagnosis of HIV AIDS in the US. Yet still today, we have no cure for HIV AIDS. We have various other select medications and ways to select manage the condition. Um, do you think that we've sort of like stepped off the gas a bit when it comes to HIV AIDS, regardless of the, the situation we find ourselves currently in across the world, obviously with COVID? No, I think we continue to push very hard with HIV. In fact, just uh, two days ago, we had the uh, uh, announcement of the data from HPTN 084, 
which was the use of injectable cabotegravir in women. Uh, and um, it's, I think, one of the most important advances we've had in a while, because one of the issues that we've been challenged with is that obviously this is a global pandemic. In Southern Africa, it is dominated by the infection of young women. Some of the prevalences among women of childbearing age are striking and frightening, 40 to 50% in some prenatal and neonatal clinics. And we've never been able to get a good pre-exposure prophylaxis program for them. You know, pills every day, they don't take them as often, or they're put in a compromised position because they, their sexual partner would essentially rebel against them if they do that. They need a, a therapy that takes a few times a year that is effective. But we didn't know it was effective until we did a trial comparing it to oral Travada. And what we found was something extraordinarily gratifying, that injectable cabotegravir in women in 084 was even better than daily oral Travada. That is a huge advance for the prevention of HIV in women. So we are not taking our foot off the gas pedal when it comes to HIV. We still feel that we need to end the epidemic as we know of it, as an epidemiological phenomenon. In the United States by 2030, we started at 2020, so it's a 10-year program, decreased incidence by 75% in five years and by 90% in 10 years, which will bring us to 2030. Uh, I think that's achievable. Uh, and I think that we need to continue to push as hard as we can to implement the program that gets us there. So short answer to your question, we're in it all the way when it comes to ending this epidemic. We are seeing a reduction in like new cases of HIV AIDS here in the US and in certain parts of the world. But of course, people are getting older and living with HIV much more so than obviously back in the 80s, when sadly, people would only live for maybe one or two years. But that in itself will bring its own medical complications, will it not for them? Absolutely. And that's the reason why we are paying attention to the medical conditions of people who have successfully beaten HIV. And by successfully beaten, I'm talking about the large, large number of people who are on one pill of three drugs a day with an undetectable viral load and a CD4 count that's reasonably good. There are many, many people there who are essentially living normal lives, except that because of the premature aging situation, they're getting many of the comorbidities associated with aging. We can't forget about that. We've got to make sure we care for them and develop better approaches to therapy and prevention of those comorbidities as these people get older. Just because their HIV is under good control with antiretrovirals doesn't mean we forget about them. Do we still see a lot of stigma or do you still see a lot of stigma around HIV AIDS, you know, 40 years on? Uh, much less so now as a total nation, but there are parts of the country uh, that dominate HIV now. And interestingly, if you look at the heat map of the country, of the infections in different parts of the country, the newer infections are restricted geographically to like 48 out of 3,000 counties in the United States. But there are seven states in the middle and southern part of the country in which the rural aspect of HIV looms large. So people 
who are living with HIV, who are contracting HIV, are predominantly an African-American men who have sex with men rural population. Under those circumstances, the stigma is very significant. And that's something that, you know, we may have gotten rid of a lot of it, not all of it, in the New York, San Francisco, LA, Chicago, New Orleans area, but it's alive and well, unfortunately, in some of the rural areas. And that's something we've got to fight against. Is it time, do you believe then again, sir, for there to be a concerted effort to have a very big sort of like public awareness campaign? I mean, I remember back in the 1980s as a young man when AIDS was sort of at its height, HIV AIDS was at its height, that there was television commercials, there was billboards. I mean, it was plastered everywhere and it was scary. I'm not suggesting that we go to that sort of level again because we know a lot more about HIV AIDS, but is it time for us to bring the awareness back? Well, it is, but it's going to be much more difficult back then because I think you used the right word. I remember very, very well. There was fear in the air. Walk down the street in the Casco District of San Francisco, you know, walk along Christopher Street in the Greenwich Village, you know, and there was this palpable feeling of anxiety as you looked around and saw people, you could tell just from looking at them, cachectic with Capuchy lesions on their face. Those were horrible years. I remember them very, very well. I still have a bit of a post-traumatic stress disorder from it, to be quite honest with you. But to get that message across now is needed. Yes, you're right. But it's going to be very difficult because it isn't as scary now as it was then, particularly in light of very good therapy and prevention modalities like PrEP for people who want it, who need it, who use it. Uh, We do have to, if we want to end it, we have to have a different kind of campaign. And it may not be a campaign on fear. It may be a campaign on, okay, it's been 40 years now. Let's get this damn thing out of here. You know, that kind of approach and just end it. So we don't have to worry about it in a pandemic way throughout the world, including in the United States. You know, we have 38,000 cases every year and we've had that for over a decade. That's unacceptable. We got to bring that down got to bring it down to a couple of thousand a year at the most for the entire country. 30,000, 38,000 is magnitude, orders of magnitude higher than it should be. Do you think part of that problem, sir, though, is that the healthcare system or the way that healthcare is set up in this country probably needs to be reviewed so that people can actually get access to, you know, these medications, things like PrEP. And also, I believe that Medicare itself uh, is changing as well so that hopefully more people can get access to, you know, medications that way. Absolutely. In fact, I have a slide that I show about places where there are clinics where you can get PrEP or where there people know about PrEP. And what the distance of driving from a, from a particular area where there's a high incidence of HIV. And like some of them is like 100 miles away. I mean, I cannot imagine. I'm here in Washington, D.C. I could jog out from this building and be in 10 places that I can get prep in five minutes. And so, I mean, that's unacceptable that people have to get in the car and drive for over an hour to be able to do that. Final question to you, doctor, and uh, thank you ever so much for your time. Um, I didn't want to mention COVID, but there is sort of a link to this. As we potentially see a vaccine on the horizon for COVID, do you think that what we have seen by way of pushing to find, you know, a, a vaccine for this particular condition, could it start to accelerate maybe more of the research or possibly, you know, a vaccine or something else for HIV AIDS? Yeah. No, I think the success of a vaccine 
uh, excites people. Everybody's excited about the, the Pfizer success and hang on to your coattails because there's going to be a few more that are going to be successful and they're going to be soon, like in the next few weeks to a month. I think you're going to hear about it. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that that, you know, you could kind of feel the important impact of a vaccine. And that's the reason why we're putting so much effort in an HIV vaccine, which would be much more difficult than a COVID vaccine, I can tell you. As HIV AIDS turns 40, we are some of the staff from the Alliance for Living, a nonprofit based in New London that helps those living with HIV, homelessness and substance use disorder to give us their thoughts and recollections on how things have changed for them over the years. We start with Kelly Thompson, CEO and president of Alliance for Living. I think a lot about the people that are no longer with us. I think about all the amazing people we have lost. I think about those people that didn't make it to get the antiretroviral therapy. I think about all my friends in our community here at Alliance for Living who are long-term survivors, who fought for us, who fought to get the treatments we have today, who lost their entire community, who are experiencing side effects and isolation. We need to keep supporting them. We need to honor them. I think about the transphobia, the racism, the sexism, and the homophobia that we have not addressed as it relates to HIV and access to treatment. I remain hopeful that there'll be a cure and a vaccine. It's way past time. But I think we need to realize that the crisis is not over and we need to keep fighting. I'm Carol Jones. I've been at Alliance for Living for 26 going on 27 years. When I started work here, I helped people die. That's really what I did. I was a support person to their family. I sat at people's bedsides and I educated the public around stigma and around how HIV was transmitted. I was really here to be with people in their final moments. All the way forward now to 26 years, I'm helping people live. I'm watching people um, have great jobs, families, have quality of life. And so the, where we were and where we are now is just diametrically two different places. And I'm thrilled to be able to say that onto the cure, I know one is coming. My name is Frank and I humbly stand here before you thinking about this time in our U.S. history where we can look back and think how just 40 years ago someone was firstly diagnosed with HIV. And I think about the perhaps time of uncertainty that many people faced then, the struggle and the fight that many were able to endure, and where we are today where this fight has still not ended. And we are in a place of continuing to stand alongside with the people who are still living with HIV and finding and waiting for that time where we can say that there will be no HIV, that there's a cure and that we can end this for all. I look about my first week of working here at Alliance for Living and there was a message of hope and thinking about how there was a new medication that started um, that was just a one regimen for medications in one. And I stand today with the same hope that better and greater things are to happen soon and we will end this for once and for all. Four. 
The Ark Eastern Connecticut invites you to participate in the 33rd Annual Gardner Johnson Memorial Golf Tournament Friday, June 25th at the Connecticut National Golf Club in Putnam. The Ark has provided residential, day, in-home and employment and social programs for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families since 1952. Come and join us as we walk in partnership for full equality for people with IDD. Event prices and details at thearkect.org forward slash golf. It's mulch season, so come and visit Green Valley Tree LLC. We have a variety of colors for all your landscaping needs. Buy as much or as little as you want, pick it up, or we can deliver to your door. Call Green Valley Tree LLC for all your mulch, plant health care, and tree service needs at 860-234-4041 or find us at 577 Boston Post Road, North Windham, Connecticut. We are family-owned and fully licensed. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. Universal Healthcare Foundation of Connecticut has called out Governor Lamont and several lawmakers for standing with big insurance companies' interests over state residents and small businesses. Francis Padilla is the president of the foundation and says the state had an opportunity to introduce affordable health insurance but didn't. The governor and the legislative leadership have basically caved to that pressure. I've gone on the record saying that the governor and the legislative leadership have essentially thrown small businesses under the bus in in the interest of the insurance companies. Padilla says Senate Bill 842, an act concerning health insurance and health care in Connecticut, would have benefited around half a million Connecticut residents who work for small businesses, giving them access to affordable health insurance and providing for undocumented residents too. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, Orsted and Eversource have agreed to charter the first Jones Act qualified offshore wind turbine installation vessel in the United States from Dominion Energy for the construction of two offshore wind farms located in the waters off New England. Dominion Energy, Orsted and Eversource announced the contract for the 472-foot ship named Charybdis, which will operate first from State Pier in New London to install Orsted and Eversource's 704-megawatt Revolution Wind and 880-megawatt Sunrise Wind Farms. Charybdis is significant because it can operate in compliance with the Jones Act, a federal maritime law that requires goods shipped between U.S. ports be transported on vessels that are constructed, owned and operated by U.S. citizens. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, Dean Di Gregorio, the area president of U.S. Foods in Norwich, said restaurant business had been slow on the whole through the pandemic, but he said business has been picking up. City Hall, the City of Norwich, U.S. Foods, the Norwich Historical Society, Miranda Creative, the Greater Norwich Area Chamber of Commerce and the Eastern Regional Tourism District announced the Passport to Norwich program as a means to encourage tourism in the city, bolstering two of the city's main recreational assets, historical sites and dining. In the Middletown Press this week, the State House gave final passage to a sweeping measure that declares racism a public health crisis in Connecticut and would trigger a deeper exploration of the effects racism has on public health. The 114-33 vote caps a year of pleas from advocates and activists to adopt the declaration at the state level. 21 Connecticut municipalities have already declared racism a health crisis and are taking steps to fight it. The approved bill requires better data collection on race and ethnicity in healthcare. And advocates for criminal justice reform are optimistic about the passage of a Connecticut clean slate bill that would clear criminal records for some people convicted of misdemeanors and less serious Class D and E felonies. Michaela Savitt reports. 
Senate Bill 1019 also outlines that a person may have their record wiped if they've completed their sentences and have had no interaction with the criminal justice system for 7 to 10 years. Gus Marks Hamilton with ACLU of Connecticut Smart Justice says people in the state with a criminal record face consequences such as barriers to employment and housing and should get a chance to start fresh. Because people who have done their time, who have earned the right to move on with their lives, earned the opportunity to move on with their lives, deserve a clean slate. Counting those with C, D, and E felonies and most misdemeanor convictions would include upwards of 250,000 people to have their records erased, Marks Hamilton says. But with an amendment to exclude people with Class C and some D felony convictions, that number will fall. I'm Michaela Savitt reporting. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening. <laughs>